What do plants need to grow? Soil, sunlight, and water. The real question, what do you need to grow? Hi, Ed. This is Tech. Real talk, real teachers, real tech leaders, and concrete next steps for upskilling your career. Let's get into it. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Ed. This is Tech. I'm your host, Anna, joined as always by my wonderful co-host, Rob. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for joining today. So today we have a very special episode. It's just Rob and I today. So hopefully we can, you know, fill the shoes of our big guests that have come on. But I'm really excited to just really catch up with Rob, talk about some of the stuff we've learned and We also have some questions that you all submitted to us on social media that we'll be going through as well. So, Rob, to kick it off, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Doing okay. I uh, wasn't in the last episode. I uh, recovered from some illness. We we think it was the flu. Flu was brought into our house. uh, Yeah, look, much better, much better now. So happy to uh, jump back in here and uh, keep the learning growing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. You were definitely missed on the last call, but I managed to hold down the fort. I mean, we'll see what people say in the reviews, but I, I think I did okay on my own. Um, I'm, I'm and sure I was you lucky did. to have two great guests as well. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome. So I'm kind of like, I wanted to just talk about like, we're almost at 20 episodes at this point, which is wild to think about. I mean, I think you and I met for the first time right before Christmas break or winter break about doing this. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of crazy how we've put out so much content. What has been one of the conversations that has really stuck with you? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I feel like it'd be tough to knock it down to just one. Um, I feel like that there is an overarching element usually to all of our calls or I feel like there's always there's always an eye-opening moment, I feel like, for the transitioning teacher and the teacher interested in changing careers that is exciting to, to be a part of and exciting to help. Um, I think that element of helping has just always been around for myself as a teacher and then now in ed tech sales. Um, so I, I think that's just been a common theme where we help teachers learn a little bit more about the industry. And I think they come into the conversation with a certain mindset, but open to learn and they learn from talking with us. And that sometimes more often than not changes the mindset or it gets them to think in different ways. So I I guess to answer your question as best I can, it's really that common theme I feel like is, is just been really rewarding. Yeah. I mean, I think let's kick it back to you. Yeah. I mean, It's tough, but I think there are two conversations that really stick with me. I mean, all of the conversations have been amazing with, um, I mean, I think about like the one we did with Maple Woodshop and just how empowering he was uh, with Julie on the phone. And it's also crazy to me too, like to think back, like some of the teachers we interviewed are now hired, like Stella and Julie are now like full-time CS people. But I Mm -hmm. think- I think the two conversations that really stuck out to me is one was your friend, Sam. Um, I'm totally going to butcher his last name, Moravati from Slack. Which, oh, yeah, man, nailed it. And it was, well, and it was, oh, I did? Sweet. Okay, A+. Um, but it was the advice he gave about 
to Eileen about reaching out and like looking at the team you're trying to get into and saying like, I noticed this skill gap missing. So like if you're wanting to go into customer success and ed tech or something like the advice would be like, you don't have former educators on your team. So you're not able to get through to your audience well enough or looking at like, hey, maybe you have a bunch of people from a technical background who need someone for more of like, who can bring that creative perspective. But I just loved his advice of being really bold and and forthright in that outreach and and owning your background and skill set. That's one. And then the other one that really stuck out to me was the conversation we did with Allison Springer. And like the whole conversation was amazing. She's um, really focused on entrepreneurship and freelance work, which I do think is a really interesting perspective for transitioning teachers and a great way to get a ton of experience really quickly. But she was saying how she, before she wanted to go freelance, she was applying to companies and she made it through, I think it was like four or five rounds of interviews at a company and got rejected. And she was like, I was freaking proud of that rejection was her whole, um, her whole perspective. And I really love that because I see so many posts on LinkedIn, like, oh, I got rejected from this company or like, oh, it's terrible. I had to go through four interviews and they don't want to hire me. But Allison's perspective was like, if I made it through the four or five interviews that she did, she's like, I clearly was a competitive candidate, right? She's like, or when I would get a call back on my resume, like it showed my resume was working. And I just think she like really flipped those challenges on their head as well in a way that I think is really empowering for listeners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, both, both of those I, I really agree with. Um, and you have me thinking here back to one of the episodes that we did with Amanda Rice, one of my former uh, managers and leaders and the part of going bold. And I remember she mentioned in the interview process, like, don't be afraid to say, is there anything about me as a candidate that you have reservations on or you would hesitate to hire? Right. And, you know, that kind of might put that person in the hot seat a little bit, but it also is calling for transparency. Because if there is a hesitation, if there is something that's maybe not a fit right there in that moment, I, I think the candidate will be able to uh, to see and to learn. Yeah, I I really enjoyed that was our first episode too, I think, but I I really enjoyed that one, um, and that advice too, because I've used that actually in interviews and. I would use it. I mean, sometimes it was when I was in like my fourth or fifth round interview at a company. And I was like, I don't know when this process ends. So I would ask that question as a way of kind of being like, you know, what's next in this process? Like, do you have doubts? Because I would like to be able to address those. But like, if not, what's holding you back from making a decision? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. Question. Which actually kind of brings me to one of the questions that a teacher submitted to us. And it's, she's asking, what's your biggest hesitation in hiring a candidate in ed tech who comes from a teaching or higher ed background? And so like, I think that really speaks to like kind of what Amanda was saying, but like, what do you think are some of the hesitations that companies might have? Yeah, I, I think there's like factors to this, right? Like, some things to factor in is like not all ed tech is the same ed tech, right? So is it ed tech that's more curriculum based? Is it ed tech that's more uh, like learning management? Is it ed tech that's more like a certain niche? And do you fit that niche in your background, right? So if the ed tech company is, let's say, for example, like STEM or science, 
right? Tech, science, software. Um, prime example, you mentioned uh, Maplewood shops like woodworking. Is there a great fit in your background to things like that, right? Because teacher, it's great you're a teacher, but do you really have that niche background, that content matter background that overlaps with the company itself? Number two, I, I, I really believe that a company based on size may have more training capabilities than other companies, like more startups. And so I think that goes into factor in if I bring in this candidate, how much uplift do I have to provide? How much training, how much time do I have to dedicate? Do I have the capacity to do that as a manager, as, as a leader in an ed tech company? Um, That's another thing to think about, right? So when you think, when you think background, is there anything that you hesitate with my background? Well, yeah, it depends because if you don't have that niche background with the company that you're talking to, and if you don't have any sort of back experience, those are all things to take into account, which goes into why we often highlight with folks, hey, you need to bring some other things that you've done in your past to the forefront. Have you been a waitress before or a waiter before? Have you done any type of customer facing roles, customer service outside of education? Have you done sales before? Have you um, worked in any other, have you run your own small business, right? So you get the whole taste of marketing yourself, selling yourself, keeping customers happy. Those are all things that you and I, Anna, will often highlight. Like even no matter how minuscule it was, you should be highlighting those things. Yeah. And I would add, like, having also done some hiring, I I agree with absolutely everything you said, especially the training capacity. I would say one of the things, too, is an awareness of who the company's buyers are. Because mm-hmm. I've interviewed transition teachers who are interviewing for a curriculum company, for example, that, yes, the end user is a teacher in a student. But in the interview, they focus exclusively on marketing to teachers, even though it's districts or principals who are signing the checks, right? So, I mean, there's an argument, and I won't bore everyone with this, like there's an argument to be made in marketing strategy of like, who's the best person to target and like how to build enthusiasm for a product. I think it comes from both a bottom up and top down approach. But I've been in interviews with teachers who are looking to go into sales, marketing or customer success. And all they're focused on is teachers without showing an understanding that the teachers aren't actually the ones buying or aren't articulating why they need to target teachers to reach the buyers. So I would say like, that's also something I've noticed missing in interviews for ed tech specifically. Um, And I would say too, and like, this kind of goes in line with that, but is like an understanding of revenue. I mean, there's a ton of really complicated metrics that you can learn. I mean, CAC, which is customer acquisition cost, ACV, average contract value, things like that. But not understanding how to connect your efforts to revenue. So like in customer success, like your goal is retention and upsell. So mentioning that you understand that in an interview goes really far. And obviously the same with sales and with marketing too, or with implementation, like you want them to have a positive implementation so they don't churn, which would mean like leave the company. So I just think 
showing an understanding of business processes. Like you don't have to be a master of them, but like make indicating that you understand revenue is the objective then at the end of the day. And you get that through driving the mission of the company and whatnot. But I'm always really impressed with a candidate who one can articulate the different audiences we want to target. And if they're focused on teachers, they have a reason why, as opposed to like a district curriculum leader, for example, and that they show an understanding that revenues are goal at the end of the day. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty deep there. But I, I think if they are able to showcase that kind of stuff, then it also showcases that they've done their homework and they're serious about making the career pivot and they're serious about likely joining your company and they have the right head on their shoulders and the right mindset too, I think is what it comes down to as well. Yeah. Like I remember I was interviewing someone for a marketing position and she was going to be helping us with social media and she was articulating how she wants to specifically focus on Instagram for us because teachers are on the platform, but she had data to show that teachers were the number one driving factor for curriculum purchases in the vertical we were operating in. So that's like, it was such a perfect articulation of her strategy and I was bought into it and it was clear she did her research. It was clear she was knowledgeable. It was clear she was revenue driven and it was clear she understood our audience and she was a transitioning teacher. So like, I think, yeah, it also, it's a way of showing up and showing that you care, which was something that actually Mike Lavelle talked about from class on our podcast about interviews is doing that extra research. So I think like, this is just another way of showing that you've put in the time to research the company. Yeah, absolutely. What other questions do you have off the uh, the forum? Yeah, so someone else asked, they said, and like, I think it kind of goes in line with this. How can we upskill or do that little bit of something extra to show we are willing to work hard to take the leap and where and what? Okay, this is a long question. Let's start with the first one. How can we upskill <laughs> or do that little bit of something extra to show we are willing to work hard or take that extra leap? Yeah, I think the answer is almost in the question, right? Like, what's the phrase that little bit yeah. of extra? So that, that's exactly yeah, what the work enti- little, entails, yeah. right? Like, so it, take those courses on LinkedIn learning, take the HubSpot training courses, take the Aspireship courses. I see a lot of that out there. So there are courses out there that, and certifications and like online webinars that help you, A, learn the industry more, can speak to it better during an interview, and then also showcase that you're serious about it right like for me years ago what that looked like was i I was told i need to do some upskilling like that so rather than looked on linkedin learning and hubspot training and at the time that wasn't nearly as popular as as it is today i looked within my own network and i needed some type of customer facing type of experience whether that was cs or sales or some kind of marketing and so I reached out to uh, my, my cousin who runs his own little private business um, and was in this kind of industry for a long time doing sales and running his own company and things like that and uh, agreed to bring me on like part time and show me the ropes and really gave me that like leg up in experience. So for me, I was doing it after school. I was doing it in the summer. I was doing it when I had time. Um and really learned a lot and had a lot of takeaways so that 
prime example, when I go into that interview now with Andrew that we met on a previous podcast, I now have a lot more to go on. I'm that candidate that probably didn't need as much training as the next candidate does. Um, I was able to pair my experience with the tool itself in the classroom as a teacher, having some leadership roles in a school setting, and also having some sales experience. And when you put all those together, that made me a really strong candidate at the time. Yeah. And I like that you talk about courses and experience because I totally agree with taking courses, but the pitfall I've seen is that like all of a sudden I'm seeing teachers list like 15 LinkedIn learning courses on their resume. And that's not even an exaggeration to some that I've seen, but even listing like five or six, it's like, get specific, take the time to do one or two that are complimentary and make sense. And then find a way to flex your skills, kind of like what you did. And that was for sales. And I think like marketing, for example, another way to upskill and and to really show that you're willing to put in the work. I mean, if you're going into like digital marketing or content marketing, reach out to companies whose products you use and ask them to write a blog. Or, I mean, like some of my clients, they're partners have businesses. And so they created an infographic for them, right? Or helped with the design of a website landing page or something like that. Um, there are so many ways. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'll talk about other ones too, but with marketing, it's, I mean, sometimes you even, I'm working with someone who she's grown a really huge personal brand around um, craft beer, which I'm from Oregon. So I love it. Um, but she's amassed this really big following. So now on her resume, she actually has that as one of her experiences because she wants to go into marketing. So she shows that she can build a brand. Um, but I would say like for instructional design, one of the biggest feedback I hear from hiring managers right now is that they need people who have experience designing the types of courses they're looking for. And a lot of times that's like onboarding or compliance training. So reaching out to someone you know to design a course, for example, like someone in a business that, and then you're like, hey, do you guys have some sort of like upcoming compliance or accreditation you need to go through? Can I design a training for it? Um, I think there are ways to get that practice. And a lot of people say like, don't do work for free, but I was on this podcast the other day with this, or listening to this podcast the other day with this guy named Chris Walker, who's huge in the marketing space. And that's how he, I mean, he has, he's working with, you know, hundred million dollar companies. And that's how he got his start was doing free marketing for people. So I do think sometimes like being strategic about it, but that can actually make a big difference and and reaching out and saying like, Hey, can I do something for free as a way to flex my skills? It'll be something you use. I can get a testimonial from you in exchange um, and be able to put it in my portfolio. But finding ways to show that you know how to do the job, even if you haven't done it before, I think are really huge. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that too, doing some level of work for, for free, right? And and I hear rebuttal to that mm-hmm. with, it's like, know your worth, you're a professional, like understanding the situation, you're trying to pivot into a new career, into a new market. And you don't have experience. So what exactly is your worth? You haven't built this up over a period of time. You haven't built an empire with decades of experience doing marketing, right? Like you're brand new to the conversation. So the, I, I do agree with that. Uh, some level of effort for free can really help 
accelerate and get that. You're in a resume building situation, right? So you can't expect to always be paid. Yeah. And if it's a step back to then take five steps forward, that's the approach I, th- I think you should take. Exactly. Like I was about to say, like, think of like people say, know your worth, but think of your worth and earning potential, right? So it's having, being able to say like, Hey, I was an instructional design consultant for six months or something that can increase your earning potential or your ability to land a well-paying job uh, more quickly that it's actually getting you more money in the long run. But it's a, like, what is, what's that word? It was like the Oreo experiment where you would leave kids in a room with an Oreo to see if they would wait. Delayed gratification. That's it. It's like a delayed gratification Mm -hmm. of effort. Um, and I think thinking about it in that perspective helps a lot. And, you know, I was six months ago doing people's resumes for free. I mean, I had a few people that would pay me, but a lot of the work I did was free, but it was a way of showcasing my skills and being able to access enough resumes to build content off of it or to build strategy off of it. So like if I tried to start redoing resumes a year ago without any experience, it would have flopped. But now it's helped me gain that experience and be able to build a, you know, a business. So I just, again, it's delayed gratification, I think is a big part of it. And patience is important. And, and knowing that, yeah, maybe I'm doing it for free, but I'm doing it because it's helpful to me. So it's not free. I'm getting paid in other ways. Oh yeah. Well, there's value, right? Um, you think about the value of now having that experience and on your resume and that, I mean, I, I, it worked out for me because when I helped my cousin, it was a paid position. Um, it wasn't killer. Yeah. It wasn't near what I was making per an hour as a professional educator, but I looked at it as like, wait a second, I get all this experience. I can, this could be the move that can now help my career and you're going to pay me 10 bucks an hour, or 15 bucks an hour. I don't even know if it was that much at the time. Um, because it goes into the conversation that there's value add to the experience. Yep. Well, and so then that second, we kind of answered the second, third, and fourth part of that question, but there's a fifth part of the question that um, <laughs> it's a great question, but it's, do you think temporary and contract positions are important to take first to prove ourselves? I think that's a very like situational decision. Can you thrive and survive off of temp work and contract work? If so, then, I mean, the whole, the whole thing is, is situational and the whole thing is weighing pros and cons. Um, Leaving teaching was not an easy decision, especially when you think about the mindset and, and the way you start to, wrap yourself in your career as an educator where it's, Hey, I have this much time till I can collect pension. I have my salary guide. I know in two or three more years, I'm going to get to X step and make X number of dollars. I can now plan things around that. I could plan stuff with family and with house and investments and retirement. So it's a very like rip the bandaid off type of experience. Um, and you really have to sit down and, and weigh the pros and cons to pivoting into a new career. And the question, even as I was doing it, was, well, what am I going to do if this doesn't work out? I was in, I'm in Jersey. 
I was teaching phys ed. I can't just find a new one, a new job. I can't just go back to teaching phys ed again at the drop of a dime. I tried to make moves into different school systems and, and different districts, um, and it was very difficult. And that was one of the reasons why I decided to uh, career pivot. So I looked at it as, well, if I leave this position and I get into ed tech, how am I even going to go back? That was a concern for me. May not be a big concern for a lot of other educators that there's huge shortages in other states and they teach a subject that has high demand and they could go back easily. That wasn't the case for me. So it involved a lot of pros and cons and weighing the benefit. And at the end of the day, I, I just I looked at it this way. I'm like, there's a lot of people thriving in the private sector and I, I have enough confidence in myself to be one of them. And so I took a shot. Well, and this was a question that then was sent to me in a DM, but someone's, and I think it goes in that word thriving, right? I mean, this teacher's wondering, like, sh she's making currently around 85k teaching, she's in a state that pays a little bit better. Um, I mean, there's not growth from that. But 85k is obviously a comfortable salary unless you're in like San Francisco or New York City. But uh, now she's looking at jobs in the private sector that are, you know, the roles she can land are 55 60k. And she's kind of wondering, like, one, is that the norm? And two, how to navigate that type of salary discrepancy? Yeah, that's great. That's a great question. Um, so my first kind of bounce back question of that, it would be, well, what type of roles are you looking to get into and thrive in? I know there's a lot of roles in, in the private sector and tech and ed tech that long term, you'll end up probably doing better than 85k if you're able to grow into it if you're able to keep moving up and maybe get more into leadership or management so that's the the first question um what's the department what's the type of work that she wants to a start off doing and then b grow into um, and this goes into the pros and cons right because if she's looking to get into a role and kind of stick into an, a junior or mid-level role and not really an interest in, in moving up or growing, then maybe that doesn't end up catching up to 85,000. That's something to think about. Um, as silly as it is, at the time when I was weighing the pros and cons, I said to myself, I've never seen a teacher drive a Ferrari. <laughs> it sounds so silly, it's but I'm like, true. because I was very worried. I'm like, how am I going to make it work? What if it doesn't work? I'm confident, but I'm like unsure. And then prime example goes into that money, right? Money is important. I said to myself, I'm like, I've never seen a teacher drive a Ferrari. I think the private sector will be okay for me. Not that I'm going to get a Ferrari anytime soon, but it's just, I, I need a level of like rationale in my mind that just help push it over the edge. And I don't think- like, I'm just waiting for your think, midlife crisis for you. Uh, yeah, right. I, I I don't think it's so much a matter of, well, it is for a lot of teachers that the pay is low. The, the, the other side of it is that the pay is guaranteed to a, a large degree. Tenure, been in the district for five years, 10 years, 15, 20. You know what you're making next year. 
you're able to, to provide a, a certain level of education to the students, it's very crystal clear, right? And, and there's a safety net, there's job security, right? So how valuable is that job security? So with this woman, what if two, three years from now, she can land a job where she's making $120,000, but it's a high performance. You really have to perform very well. Otherwise it may not work out. So would you take that gamble? It's something to think about. And speaking of gambling, another DM I got from someone, it just came through is, and this is something like, I truly can't answer. This one's all you, Rob, but she's looking at jobs and sales and she understands that there's a base and a commission. She's looking to go into an SDR role, but the commission gives her anxiety. Like you were just kind of talking about, like it's a gamble, right? Things aren't guaranteed. It's obviously performance driven. So she's wondering like one can you negotiate your base salary as an SDR or even in sales in general? Should, excuse me, should you in, in what, like, what should you look at in terms of like how commission is paid out to, to make sure you're supported? Like, how should you think about your salary in sales? That's really the question. Yeah. Uh, I would say there's, there's probably less wiggle room at the SDR level that she's exploring. Um, a golden rule in sales, at least for myself and everyone else I've come across in the industry is you have to look at your base as what you're going to live off of and then your commissions and then combine that, that equals what's called your on target earnings. Your commissions should be icing on the cake, right? So like prime example, don't go out and buy the Ferrari assuming you're going to hit your commissions. You have to be able to live off of your base. Now that might get tough to do with, with transitioning from a teacher to SDR and considering the numbers, um, doesn't work out for folks like sure it, it can, if you get in and you thrive and you do well, um, maybe you can count on that type of, uh, money coming in. But I would say the the golden rule is look at your base and plan your finances around your base. Number two, when it comes to negotiating, you have more wiggle room as you start to climb the ranks. Because right now, this is essentially an entry-level role. Someone coming in probably with limited experience needs that training. If you've been in the industry for five years and you build up that resume and can now go for a VP of sales, director of sales, enterprise sales role, and say, here's my track record. I've over-exceeded quota several times. I've been um, thriving in this industry. I've made it to President's Club several times. Um, you now have a much bigger leg to stand on and do those um, negotiations. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good way of putting it in terms of like the commission should be icing on the cake. And something else too, I'm wondering, because this is, it's something I hear a lot. Like a lot of people are going into or out of education for more work-life balance for mental health reasons. And that's definitely a huge benefit, but it really does depend on your career and your pathway. I would say in education or in, in the corporate world, I, I don't know if you would agree, but I think it kind of goes into what you were talking about in terms of thinking about like really what direction you want to go in and using that to weigh some of the pros and cons of the transition to like, what, what do you think about that? I'm sorry, you glitched there. Anna, can you repeat that? Oh, yeah. No, it's, I mean, 
I get a lot of teachers reaching out to me saying the reason that they want to transition is for greater mental health, more work-life balance. And that's definitely something you get in the corporate world, but it depends on your career and career trajectory, right? And like what roles you're going to hold and where you're going to work. Like if it's a tiny startup, for example, and you're working at all hours and you have ownership in it, like what, what is your advice then? Um, Cause this was what someone asked to understanding the benefits you will get from a mental health perspective by transitioning out of teaching. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think for me and for a lot of folks that do the transition and it, it's all dependent on the role. So for sales, it's a little bit more high stakes. <clears throat> you have that hard quota, you have certain metrics. So there's pressure and there's stress, it's just a different type of stress. Are you open to stressing about not doing well and possibly being let go? Because the the patience <coughs> is a lot shorter for something like that. So it, it goes back to that job security element that I mentioned. Um, sure, there's a lot of stress right now in education, but again, it, Maybe the shortage gives you job security. Maybe tenure gives you job security. You have that job security. So if you're budgeting right, you have the right finances, the right, um, you know, lifestyle where you're not overly stressing. Um, you have a little bit more comfort in terms of that. But your day-to-day might be pretty difficult with, with the stresses that the job entails. On the back end for the private sector, or at least in sales and, and other like revenue generating roles. Um, those things might be okay. They might work out financially, but you have a lot more stress. Like the success of the company could be on your shoulders. You may not have the current um, pipeline. You may not have the current deals in place. And you could be having these conversations where, hey, it's not really working out. What are you going to do to fix it? And if, you, if you're not, then we're going to have to part ways. So there's different levels of, of stress for sure. And I will say, like, I have that conversation a lot on the marketing side. Like, we're also very revenue focused. And I'm having to pull up numbers that are, you know, directly impact the revenue of the company and therefore, like, directly impact your employment and other people's employment. And it's part of this. One of the things I think is stressful, and this is what I've heard from transitioning teachers I've worked with is, you know, success really depended on like you in your classroom, you owned it. But and this is maybe maybe this is a marketing thing, but marketing is extremely collaborative or like my revenue goals and marketing are obviously dependent on sales too, right? And like their ability to close pipeline. And if they're following up on leads that we're putting through, and, and there's a million reasons, like they might be junk leads that we're sending through. It's There's a whole other conversation on a different podcast to be had. But when your salary is partially dependent on um, commission, which a lot of marketing now is too, you're dependent based off of how others are performing as well. And that can be another challenge because it's out of your control at that point. Yeah. I mean, that, that could be true too, right? Like it's out of your control, but it's also up to you at the same time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because... Well, and that's like, and that's why it's important. Yeah. I was going to say, like, well, on the marketing I was going to say, like, they that's might say, I... like, they might say, hey, uh, so what about the sales folks? Like, then come up with better content 
right? Come up with better content marketing so that the folks that do reach out are really actually interested. And on the flip side, they could look at someone in sales and say, yeah, well, marketing's not bringing in the lead. So, okay, it's up to you. Figure it out. And that's why I think it's really important when you're interviewing a company to like figure out the type of culture that they have, right? So like I look for ones where there's really strong sales and marketing alignment, right? Because then, and I know that I can go to my like people in sales and be like, hey, I launched this campaign. How are the leads, right? Like, let's iterate, let's like, and it's collaborative, but I bet in companies where that's not the case. And so I, I think like that's also, especially when you're going into a role where your role, where your pay is partially commission driven or results driven and performance-based role, like you really want to make sure you understand the team you're going into as well. We had one right. last question I wanted to answer and that's just, and it kind of ties in. I think this one will be quick, but she's wondering, like, does she need to get a, a new degree to transition? I don't think so. Do you? I mean, it, for no yeah i i can't say no (laughs) firm no it's it's all the role right like if you want to be a software developer like that's a different type of track that's a different learning learning track right that that might involve a degree or certification i'm sure at least um but for some of the other roles more of the customer facing revenue ones i don't believe so um although I think out of the three between sales, customer success, and marketing, and I think marketing might be the one that, I mean, you have a marketing major in college, you can have a marketing actual degree. There's really not a sales college degree or a CS college degree out of those three. So kind of curious on that end. What I'll say is, yeah. I have never hired someone with a marketing degree and I've never worked for someone with a marketing degree. Not intentionally. I just think a lot of people end up in marketing through like weird paths like that. They're naturally creative and data driven. And that's how I got there. Like I would say if someone has a marketing degree, like I literally couldn't care less when I'm reading their resume, I would want to see like, Hey, is this person like going out and like creating blog posts or have they built their own personal brand? Have they, you know, done any type of marketing work, even if it was for like a friend's business or even in their school, like manage their school's website. Like some of the people I've hired have done that. Like just looking for ways to like flex your marketing skills is, is more so like, I want to see, even if marketing's a newfound passion, I just want to see something that shows me like you are passionate about the work. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Awesome. So that's all the time we have. But Rob, I think we did an okay just us or an okay job just us too. Yeah, I think we uh, we held it down. We held it down, which is just so everyone knows, I'm out of town for the next two weeks. So we're pre-recording this because I'm going on my honeymoon, even though I got married four years ago. But that way I don't have to record episodes on the honeymoon and really piss my husband off. So um, I appreciate you doing this with me, Rob. We'll be back to regularly scheduled content after this, but I actually really enjoyed this and kind of just getting to catch up with you because we're always on podcasts with people, but we rarely get to just chat us too as well. Yeah, likewise. And enjoy your honeymoon. Congratulations again. (laughs) Yeah, very long time ago, but awesome. Well, thanks, Rob. Take care. (laughs) 